Hey guys, this is By Maris Podcast, episode 001. I'm very glad that in this first episode ever, my first guest was Brian Begin from Fearless. Fearless is a self-development company for men. They're focused on increasing confidence, improving embodiment and emotional intelligence for men. I have met Brian on multiple of their workshops and he became a friend of mine and a mentor. I really enjoyed the interview. We talked about multiple things ranging from Brian's story of how he overcame agoraphobia, which is fear of leaving the room, a massive social anxiety, all the way to becoming a confidence coach and starting a successful coaching company. We talked about guilt and the place of guilt in life and how it influences the decisions and how we, how we think and feel. We talked about Brian's take on meditation. We talked about being in the head too much, being too analytical. And in the end, Brian talked about the dance between the masculine and the feminine and what he thinks about the toxic masculinity and this kind of culture, which we hear a lot from the media today. So, as I said, I really enjoyed this interview a lot and you guys can enjoy it too. So, here you go. So, I want to start with a broad question. You're a fearless coach. Basically, you started the company and you're the main coach. What does it mean for you in, in your own words? Um... What does it mean for me? Well, originally, when I started this company, it was actually not even Fearless. It was Interconfidence, um, the name of the company. I bought the URL Interconfidence many years ago. Loved it, used it for business name, started a business with it with a with an associate of mine. Um, ended up selling that business to him. He still has it today, Interconfidence. And um, and I thought, I sat there and thought for a long time, what's a good new business name? If I want to start something new on my own. And at first was Fearless Dating, and I bought fearlessdating.net. And the reason I picked Fearless, and I really like that, I almost like that more than inner confidence because it, it sparks this emotional response in men. Men, by nature, the masculine grows through challenge, grows through facing fear, challenging fear, and, and becoming vulnerable in the midst of the fear, but staying strong and not needy in that vulnerability. And then that grows it and wakes them up to a new level of masculinity. Um, and men uh, need challenge today. We're missing it. So this idea of fearless isn't that really that you get over fear that you change. It's more that you change your relationship to fear. So the fear starts to become interesting. It starts to become fun. It starts to become fascinating. You know, you can look at a roller coaster and say, I, I, I don't ever want to get on that. Or you could be the guy that's like, it's scary, but I can't wait to get on it. Or better, better example would be skydiving. You know, I want to jump out of that plane and I'm like, what oh, scares the shit out of me? I can't wait to do it. And there's that relationship to fear that you're building that. I'm going to become fearless in the face of my own fear. And oh, that's an interesting way to put it. Fearless in the face of my own fear. And that grows you. And every time you get a little bigger, there'll be a new challenge, a new thing to be scared of. And when you look at somebody like Richard Branson, who's figuring out how to fly an airline in space, that's a whole new level of becoming fearless. You know, he's doing stuff that nobody's ever done before. And, um, and so that's how, that's how I view it is fearless is, isn't about necessarily getting rid of fear. It's about having a, a, be a beautiful relationship to fear. And, um, that's, and so I've loved that name ever since. Yeah. I really like that. The, the, the oxymoron of it, that basically the fearless doesn't really exist, but it's, no. a, it's a state where you're so closely related to your fear and you're so okay with facing it that to the outside, it appears as if you didn't have it or as, as if you were actually fearless. 
Beautifully put. Thank you. I love that description. I will be using that. Um, <laughs> it's when you have no more attachment or aversion to fear. Uh, I always say the body goes through a, a certain set of emotions. And, and I never quite described it like this in releasing, maybe once or twice, but the body goes through a certain set of emotions and sensations. And um, But the, the higher self, the consciousness, is, is an, if, if you can start to identify with your consciousness itself, it doesn't feel any of that. It's just, it's just expansion. It's possibility. It's moving forward. And, and, and so the more you disidentify or unattached or averse to the, to the body's emotions, the more you can have them you can cycle through them, but you can also move past them very quickly. You can learn from them. You can grow from them. But you more than make you make them mean something. Oh, I gotta analyze my fear. I gotta follow it with fear. My poor. Oh, I can't believe I'm afraid. The more they own you, and the less you can identify with that higher part of yourself. That's just that's just constantly growing and expanding. I, I think in our it's in a social conditioning, it's somehow ingrained that fear is there to serve you somehow. That fear is there to protect you from some harm. So when you feel fear, it's something like okay, now I should pay attention. Now, now I should pay attention to more and avoid the danger I'm facing. And I remember I, it was only up until recently that I managed to actually fully feel my fear that I was sitting somewhere. I was going, I was going to approach one where I am to talk to one waiter in a restaurant. And mm -hmm. I, I remember feeling afraid, but it was for the first time that I actually decided to feel the fear fully. And quite frankly, it felt like, like, a, like a psychopath, like, like the second before the, the decision, like I make a conscious decision to fill my fear. It's, it's unusual. It's unusual. Do you think there is a, like a justified fear? Like, like there is actually a way that fear helps us? Yeah, no. I mean, yeah, if you've got a lot of fear and you go do something, um, and it's extreme amount of fear, you might hurt yourself because the fear wants to become real, right? It wants to, you know, fear wants to create the, what, cause you're so focused on the fear and the intense emotion, you want to bring the thing into reality. So you, you're terrified of skiing down this black diamond run and you, and you, you don't have enough experience. Everybody tells you to do it. And the, the fear and the fear is freaking you out and you're going up into your head. Maybe it's not the time to go down that black diamond run at a ski resort. Mm -hmm. Maybe, yeah, a little bit of fear is okay. You're definitely facing some fear, but if you're just freaking out, you're going to tense up, you're going to hurt yourself. Now, does that mean that the fear was telling you something you should know? Well, could you have had, let's, let's put it another way. Could I have had the same instinctual hit without the fear? If I was really in tune with my body and in tune with my instincts, could my body have said, don't do that because I love my body, I appreciate my body, and I appreciate my health and I'm not ready for it without the need for all that fear? Or if that fear wasn't there, maybe maybe you have the skill to go down the mountain and, and once that fear is released, you're like, oh, you know, I can handle this slowly, a little bit at a time. And But if I did it with all that fear, I could hurt myself. So there's a lot of layers to this. I personally believe that when you get starting getting past fear, fear doesn't feel like fear anymore. Fear just feels like an instinctive hit. And it's, it's not like, it's like, don't do this, do this, you know, move in that direction. And then when you do get fear, there's growth there. There's something you're resisting, not feeling. You'll still get fear. It'll just be in greater areas of growth. And as you release the fear, you start to get more conscious of the best way to handle the situation. Should I or should I not? Then your instincts become super clear. Um, you know, Hawkins talks about that. You know, do we have to? Guilt's another great question. Do I have to? Do, is there a healthy form of guilt? And Hawkins would argue there's not. 
that guilt is is a, a product of of, uh, uh, of trying to control people and and if you get conscious enough you'll release all that guilt and you'll do things not out of guilt but out of love for the other other you like i won't be rude to somebody out of guilt of getting in trouble or i won't break the lot of guilt of getting in trouble i'll do it out of the love of, of my of my fellow man of my country of my people of people around me and it's a different motivator completely yeah i have a question about guilt actually prepared because i think it's one of, to me it's one of the most difficult emotions to release and it's because it, it somehow relates to other people so when i'm letting go of, of my own guilt it, it feels like it's also related to all the others that guilt is that guilt is related to and for some reason it feels that it's bigger it's bigger than anger it's bigger than shame bigger than it is actually sadness. It's, one the, it's one of the biggest emotions there is have you read any of the course in miracles yeah i did like first 100 days maybe yeah, if you read The Course in Miracles, they'll say that guilt is all pervasive and it's everywhere. And it's it's the humans have been programmed with so much guilt. And that's what kind of almost, it's it's like this primordial emotion that's deep down inside of us that we're constantly feeling guilty for everything we do. And then when you realize that guilt is all pervasive, Hawkins talks about it and let it go too. And you start to see how we're swimming in guilt all the time and start to release that, that's a life changer. Mm -hmm. um, um, so an example of this is that how do you program a child from early childhood to stay safe? Well, the child's not conscious enough yet. You say, don't, you know, uh, so the, so the natural instinct is to use guilt. How does a church program? How does the government program? Um, a good example is you're driving down the street and you're, you're just relaxing, you're singing your music, you're not paying too close of attention to the speed. And then suddenly you see a cop. You suddenly feel guilty the moment you see the cop look at your speed. Am I going too fast? Start double checking everything two and three times. Or yeah. when you cross the street, you suddenly feel guilty the moment you're going to cross the street because you're not technically using the crosswalk and you don't want to get in trouble. You bump into somebody in line at the at, at a at a buffet or a restaurant. Oh, do you suddenly feel guilty for bumping into them? And do we need to feel guilty for all these things? And again, it comes back to the same question I said earlier. Can you just when you bump into somebody? Uh, apologize out of respect and love for the person not out of guilt can you cross the street and and look both ways and like a child needs to be taught out of guilt potentially we could argue this uh to the, you're going to get in trouble you're going to get hurt so you don't do that and you step in the street so they don't get themselves killed but then maybe as we our consciousness evolves the child can learn to look both ways out of love and respect for his own body and not out of a sense of guilt you know, uh, governments for forever have needed to control people through guilt. Religions have needed to control people through guilt. So every time you're walking down the street and you even at 1% feel like, you you know, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Oh, what does that person think of me? How does that person, you know, there's guilt, of the, uh, there's guilt over everything. It's, it's a great chapter on this in Hawkins' book, but there's guilt of the moment. There's guilt of, you know, did I, did I, you, you walk around one group, of friends and you you act one way you act around another group and act another way out of guilt of them judging you we we, we have guilt over our, our the politicians we pick we have guilt over the uh like you you get around one group of people and they make you feel like shit for not having the proper education mm. and then you feel guilty you didn't go to school enough and then another group you know it's just guilt is a sense i did something wrong yeah there's, and then that engenders punishment, which engenders fear. So guilt immediately creates the sense of fear because you deserve to be punished. Somebody is going to pick on you. Yeah. I really like the, the, I'm not sure if it was A Course in Miracles or Hawkins, 
Uh, but somewhere it says that when you feel guilty, the punishment buys you freedom. So when you get punished, that's causing the relief from guilt. And I have a, I have a wonderful memory from primary school when I got like a, like a grade four at school from mathematics for the first time in my life. And I knew it was wrong, but I didn't really know why because I didn't really care about grades. It was like ingrained from parents. And I was walking home and I remember feeling so guilty for the four, for the D, mm -hmm. like the D, the D grade. And then I was talking to my parents and I literally remember asking, I think it was my mom or my dad, I asked them, why don't you rather slap me than having me this 30 minutes conversation about this? <laughs> like, <laughs> so I can be done. Yeah, let it go. Yeah, yeah so, so, so I can be safe and like the, the account is balanced. Like I got my, so I, I got my, you know, damage, you got yours damage and well, we, even we can move on. Yeah, that's super true. I, I did that in grade school too. I did a, a, a it was a mathematics, a little section of math. It was all minuses, like this, minus this, minus this, minus this, a whole row of them, I remember. And I did them all as pluses. And at the end, I realized they were all minuses. So I just took my pencil and made them all pluses, <laughs> thinking the teacher would notice because I was a little kid. And, um, and, then, and, there was that. and then when she finally called me up and said, why did you do this? And starts showing me like what I did. I, yeah, there was a sense of guilt, but there was a huge sense of relief after it was over. Okay, now I never have to worry about that because it ties up energy in the back of your mind, right? Yeah. And um, so guilt is an energy drainer. Like how much guilt are you using? It's, it's huge. Um, so I, I, I see guilt as like, it's hard to see it's fish in water. We have so much guilt running in, in our lives that it's like a fish in water. And where there's guilt, there's probably shame. There's definitely guilt. If you have shame, there's definitely guilt. And you can have guilt without shame, but usually where there's guilt, there's gonna be shame. So they go hand in hand. Um, and, um, and then everything gets kind of gets based on that down in apathy, grief, and fear. That's where it all happens. You know, yeah. people that have a lot of guilt and shame get stuck in apathy, grief, and fear. When you have people, when you work with people who have a lot of guilt, what's, what's the best strategies to, to help them? I mean, as quickly as possible, or maybe a, a supporting beliefs that can, that can change this quickly. Well, they got to first, quickly, quickly. Gotta first, you got to first see it, you know, and most people can't see all their guilt. And then when, and if they do see it, they see it for a few minutes and walk down the street and put it back away and stop noticing it again. Um, it's like a fish in water. Until you see the water, you can't do anything about the water. Well, in the case of a fish, the fish doesn't want to get rid of the water. But uh, in the case of guilt, we do. It's like a fish in dirty water. If you're used to being in dirty water, you know, you can't do anything about it. Um, so first step is you got to get, you got to become aware of guilt and how much it runs your life. Um, you know, uh, getting ready for this podcast. Was there any sense of like, I have to hurry, I need to be dressed a certain way, or I'll feel guilty, I need to look a certain way, or I'll feel guilty? You know, is there any sense of, oh, I have, I'm running late, I'm not gonna have the lighting right, I don't have the right background, I don't have the right uh, microphone, it's not gonna sound good, and then there's a sense, it's not that any of those things are bad in themselves, but is there a sense of guilt for each one, and I should be punished, I'm doing something wrong, I didn't show up enough, I didn't work hard enough, I didn't go get this taken care of, why didn't I get this taken care of earlier? that beating yourself up in the background, yeah. that's punishing yourself for the engendered guilt that you're, that you're feeling. And then you beat yourself up, so you're self-punishing. You think about religion, they do this in religion all the time, right? Religions control people through guilt, and then they have to have repentance. You know, you're, you're a sinner, here's your repentance, or we gotta flog you, you know, something like that. And, and so all day long, we're doing this. We're running around feeling nervous or afraid 
and, and you don't realize that nervousness and fear that you're doing something wrong or just did something wrong, no matter how minuscule it is. Like I got a rush, there's a race, there's a reactiveness is all in relationship to guilt mostly, you know? Hmm. And, um, and I don't know if you had any of those experiences when getting ready for the podcast, but well, I was laughing because I changed my t-shirt like 20 minutes ago. <laughs> I turned the lights up before the podcast and moved the lamp just in front of the notebook to make it perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, and that's I... all but those are beautiful things to do. Think about it. Those are beautiful things to do if you're doing it because you want to have a great podcast. If there's just feeling of I'm going to make this look good. It's going to be beautiful. I'm having fun. I'm being artistic with it versus Am I doing something wrong? Am I making a mistake? Am I doing this bad? Is it, am I going to let everybody down? You see what I mean? You see the difference yeah. in those two energies? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it comes down a lot to, to being able to see your own culture from the outside. Like I studied, in, I studied outside my, my home country. I was in the United States multiple times for, for workshops and know many people from abroad. And I'm not sure if I would be able to, to see my own self from a high perspective without this experience. Because like, a fish in a dirty water doesn't know that the water is dirty. That the water is dirty if it lives in its its entire life. Yep, that's, that's the same thing with anxiety too, guilt, shame, all those. You you're living in it for so long, you grow up in it. Your household is filled with it. Let's say, let's say you're born into a family that's filled with it. How do you, you know, I thought I had so much anxiety growing up, and I didn't know it. I was like, no, I don't have anxiety. We talk. Everybody else could see it. <laughs> what are we talking about? And I'm like. And then I let some go. I do a process, let some go. Oh, I feel so much better. Now the anxiety's gone. They're like, no, it's not. It's less, a little bit less. And I'm like, really? Yeah, there's still a lot there. And, and that's where the video feedback, when we do a lot of video work, it really helps. It helps you to see what's going on inside you. Yeah. The reason we call it the unconscious mind. Hmm. Yeah. I find it wild that, that even, even when it's lower, I used to have a tendency to feel guilty for not enough progress. And that's what caused the progress go even slower, which is again, yeah oxymoron but but it's it's just beautiful how the mind literally locks the the, the development through guilt yeah when you look at when you look at the emotional scale apathy grief fear lust anger pride courage acceptance peace or courage acceptance love peace in hawkins book um that's heaviest to lightest for anybody watching or listening to this podcast the heaviest emotion is apathy that's depression sadness it's uh well even more than sad numbness uh pointlessness grief is sadness loneliness hurt then fear and it goes up like that the bulk of the planet um hawkins and people like that would say or lester levinson who, who uh created releasing originally would say the bulk of the planet lives down in apathy grief and fear and has moments of being up in courage love acceptance peace uh, courage, acceptance, love, peace, and has these moments of these bouts. They come home and they spend time with their family, their dog. They watch TV. They and but they go the bulk of their a good bulk of their day is down heavy, you know. And then, um, but very few people, a small percentage of the planet, lives primarily up in courage, acceptance, love, and peace, and just visits and has bouts, little bouts of going down and apathy, grief, fear, lust, anger, pride, but spends the bulk of the time up there. And that's what we all want to get to. We want to get to where we're living at the top of that scale. And, and yeah, it doesn't mean we don't experience the other stuff. But we don't, we're not in it 80% of the time if you use the 80-20 rule. It's the other way around. We're up at the top 80-20% of the time. And that's what I shoot for. Uh, I've been shooting for in my life. And my life's uh, getting better and better because of that. And um, I had to present that really quick, that whole scale. <laughs> you know, I break it all down for a while. So. 
Yeah, I think it's very practical for those who, who listen to it and weren't uh, familiar with it. I'm curious about one thing. Like, I was reading on 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 the website that you that I know also you noticed. Um, I mean, you mentioned that you had a, like a massive anxiety, but on yeah. the website it says that it was on the verge of agoraphobia, which is fear of going out of the room. Yeah, I, I'm curious. Yeah, so so how how. I know the story from the moment that this girl broke up with you and then you started to dive, dive deep into, but I'm curious. Yeah, the agoraphobia was way before that, so. Yeah, I, I'm curious from uh, what the development was from the point that you had this massive fear of, 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 of social you know, connection to being able to actually approach people and, and talk, talk, to, talk to a girl and actually find a girlfriend. Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, well, as a child, I was very, uh, you know, internal. I, I just didn't talk to a lot of people. I had a small group of friends. I hated going to school. I wanted to stay home all the time. I wanted to play Dungeons and Dragons with my friends. You know, I didn't want to play with my computer. I didn't want to leave the house. And so, and I was pretty much anti-social like that all through high school. Even in high school, I didn't want to go to any of the dances. I didn't want to go anywhere. I wanted to go back home. Um, and I just thought, you know, you're a kid. That's how I am. And, um, when I was around a small select group of friends, I was pretty good, but for the most part, that's how I was. I was pretty much, I'd say I was pretty depressed overall. Um, and then in my 20s, I wanted to solve this problem. So I got rid of the computers of the Dungeons and Dragons and everything. Even around 18, I started to do that. And I started reading personal growth books uh, in my early 20s like crazy, thinking I'd find the answer in one of these books. They would make me. <laughs> They would give me the technique that will change me. And I was looking for technique. I was a data collector, super analytical. I got to where I had a lot of data. And this is part of why I can do what I do today. I had so much data up here, but this wasn't changing. This was, but, and so I'd help people, people who were farther along than me, let's say, would come to me, oh, I had this problem. I say, oh, I read this in a book or I learned this. And oh, that was great, man. That super helped me. Thanks. And they move on. I see their lives change. My life didn't change though. So, and the difference was, was they, they could implement what I was talking about because they didn't, they weren't in the level of apathy or even fear I was in, but I understood, I had a lot of data. So I'd share it with them. They would go implement it. And I was like, oh, that's great. Love doing that uh, with people. But my life was still, I was more like the guy on the sidelines that could see things, but wasn't living it. Um, and so I was still pretty antisocial, even in my twenties. I didn't like to go out. I'd go to, I finally started forcing myself to go to bars and stuff like that, but I didn't talk to anybody hardly. I'd stay in the back. I would, if I, I would, I would like my chest would pound out of my heart if I was going to even talk, or if a girl came over and talked to me, I'd freak out. Like I would be, end up leaving most nights depressed and sad um, because I just couldn't get past the barrier. I didn't understand what it was. So, when I finally got committed, I, I, I had quit. I went through hypnosis school. That helped me a lot. I spent a year training in that, did a lot of, uh, and through that, that really opened me up some because I started to learn to feel my body more. And that's when the first experience of learning to feel my body happened through a lot of the hypnosis. And I started to become more social just through that, not dating wise, but just with people. I started to talk to more people. I started to present. I started to work with people. I was terrified most of the time, but I was pushing myself now just a little bit more, a little bit more. And I was in a, in a controlled environment that was really good for pushing myself. Um, but I didn't practice for a long time after that. Then I got a job and I had various jobs and the jobs brought me out a little bit more too. They had me teaching uh, maintenance programming at one point. And that, you know, I worked for a maintenance, I was a, a customer service to maintenance programmer to teaching the maintenance program. And I really realized I love teaching. 
And when I started teaching, I was really happy. And so it started to bring me out of my shell. The customer service rep started to bring me out of my shell. All these little things I was doing, just a little bit. So it was just a slow progression of jobs. Um, but I still was very antisocial when it came to meeting new people and strangers. I couldn't, you know, people I knew already, I started to get pretty decent with. I was still a nice guy. Wasn't good with women. Even women I knew found me as just to want to be a friend. But I was a little more outgoing now. So then I decided to one point to change that I had quit all my jobs, moved into this crazy yoga community and I lived there for a year and, and I realized that I just needed to push myself. So I moved out of there and I started to study dating. <clears throat> I said, what can I do? I started listening to David D'Angelo. He was popular at the time. I read the game. I said, I got to change my life in this area. I'd already read a few dating books before that, um, love tactics and a few others, but kind of loosely, but, but, uh, loosely, applied them but when I really this is the point in my life and now I'm in my mid-30s I said I got to change all of this and after reading the game making some friends that were reading the same stuff I said you know let's do something about this so I started going out and and I remember I was in Long Beach and I said I'm just gonna walk up to people and ask them the time and I saw this guy older not older but probably maybe late thirties, forties, big belly. And I was like, I'm going to go ask him the time. And I thought him and his, whoever he was walking with, I couldn't do it. I felt like such a nice guy because deep inside, I, I, I felt ashamed, guilt over asking the time because I knew the time and it just, it riddled me. I'm like, I'm lying to him. I can't do that. The nice guy in me wouldn't let me do it. And I realized that's when I realized I had a real problem. I can't even ask a stranger the time unless I really need to know the time. And um, <clears throat> so I just kept pushing myself and I would do this stuff all the time. I'd go out and if I had to stand there for an hour to get up the nerve to ask somebody the time shaking, you know, I'd go do it and I'd do it again. I'd do it again. I just kept, I made, I moved in with a natural and I started following around people that were doing this stuff. And I had some guys that were pushing me into people, forcing me to talk to people. And I was still terrified. Um, but everything was just a slow progression like this over time. Uh, eventually I, I kept pushing myself more hanging around with naturals. This one natural in particular met this girl. That's where I got my heart broken, you know? And then from there I, I, I took some workshops to pick one-on-one and they pushed me into a ton of people and, and I was still riddled with fear and guilt, but at least I was doing it now in the face of my fear and guilt. And it wasn't necessarily getting rid of my fear, but I was learning to push it down more and more. And so then I started using a lot of rock stars and energy drinks to stay pump myself to go out to bars and do it until I finally burned out from that, crashed, you know. And then finally, um, a lot of changes happened when I started with one of my major teachers, Carl, Carl Wolf. He really helped with me with a lot of embodiment practices, learning to feel, learning to relate to my body. I started doing a lot of meditative practices. We started started working with a lot of uh, women, bringing them in to, to do eye gazing practices. And I started to get a lot more connected. And a lot more is, is, that a, is that a Qigong teacher or what, what kind of teacher was he? He just called himself a, there was no specific title. He didn't, he didn't have any title. He just, he had a school he, out of his house. He taught for him. He called it a mystery school. We did a lot of energetic practices and movement practices, body-based embodiment practices, feeling, emotional embodiment. Mm -hmm. um, 
tons of stuff. We had constant studies, discussions. We watched each other on video like all the time and then broke down how we perceived it, each other. We looked at our subcommunication, looked at how we were telling people to treat us. We looked at, this went on for four years. Um, I had a massive shift in my life. And uh, a lot of, it was a lot of teachings in there. I can't say there was any one type, but it's, it became the basis of everything I do today. Um, and why I do what I do today. And then I continued to modify and shift it based on other things I had learned and knew. And I started to see, I started to get it. I was like, oh, this is like spiritual stuff in a lot of ways, but it's more grounded, more practical, more day-to-day, -day, more realistic, more in your body, more rooted. And I felt that's what a lot of this, the energetic work that I saw out there today was missing. Was that people weren't rooted and grounded and they were all trying to open their hearts and they weren't feeling. And they, and this started to change my life. Success started to come in in different areas. It started to get easier and easier. And then from there, and then from there, I eventually added releasing um, because I found releasing. And and once I saw this guy doing entrainment with releasing, I looked at him and I knew exactly what he was doing because I'd done so much of the subcommunication work with Carl, and he didn't know what he was doing. He's like, I don't know how I do what I do, and I said, I do. I can see it. Four years of reading sub, subtle subcommunication with Carl, I could see what he was doing. It's very subtle. So I started breaking him down, reverse engineering his tech, what he was doing. I wouldn't call it a technique, his feeling based process. And it started to shift my life radically. The two together were like dynamite, you know, when I put those two systems together. And then, then I went and started studying releasing because he was doing entrainment and releasing. And Carl was, was doing a little bit of entrainment, not the level of this guy, mm -hmm. but, but a lot of deep embodiment. So communicate for all that together blended so beautifully. And then I just started doing teachings around that and everything's gone crazy since changed my whole life i see yeah it's like it, it feels like it all makes sense now when you look backwards but when you're in it and you're going through the anxiety being scared of leaving the house it's really difficult to look at it this way yeah, yeah if you hold an intention in mind and you're consistent with it it has to ultimately manifest uh, but what most people do is they they see the journey or the road and the mountain in front of them and they just quit it's too much. I don't want to deal with it. I'd rather drink beer, rather watch my sitcoms. I'd rather, you know, hang out with my friends that aren't going anywhere because it's easy. It's something, you know, the more we have systems to avoid, the more we'll use those systems because they're immediate gratification. We, we Long-term gratification, which is actually what's super rewarding for the soul and body. Um, you know, that requires a little more effort and people are so addicted to their immediate gratifications. And that's. I have a question about meditation. Uh, you talk a lot about meditation in your courses, especially that there are so <laughs> there are so many ways how to do it wrong, right? Like being in your head, imagining and having these wonderful, blissful experiences, while not really taking it into the real life, and then crashing even faster. So how how would you how would you um, recommend doing the meditation, or what's what, what's your best practice over the years that, that you learned? Okay. Well, I wouldn't say wrong, but I would say you can, you can use meditation as a, as a disassociative process. This is something I've noticed. I've had a lot of meditators come to me and say they quit meditation because they would get really blissful in their meditations, but then they wouldn't want to do anything else. They would, they would come out of it and their life would suck. So they just want to go back to meditation. Um, didn't, and they, and one guy quit altogether because his life wasn't changing at all from meditation other than he would have these blissful moments in meditation. What I began to notice with those people, I'm not saying all people are doing this, 
says what they're doing is using meditation to disassociate from the now. They create their own little bubble of meditation, push all this out. And, and, and what they, what they could do with the meditation is start to let that meditate on feeling everything they don't want to feel until they resolve the pain. That's a form of releasing until they resolve the resistance to it. And then the meditation expands and allows them to become one with everything and beyond everything. And that's what we want to do. Um, but most, a lot of people just don't do that. They find a way to, to avoid what is in the physical world and almost disassociate from it. Um, now what was the other part of your question? Um, how, what, what's your idea of how to do it with, so that it's most effective, but you basically answered the question by yeah. saying that like you go right through the negative feeling and, and wait until they resolve themselves. Yeah. Yeah, everything is felt in and through the body, right? Your body is your feeling mechanism. You, know, you got all these senses and sensations and feelings. And so any place you're resisting, like if I, if I meditated in a perfect, beautiful like, stream and it's beautiful or in, in my room with this perfect music, and it's easy. But let's say now um, I want to go out and, and step in front step outside where there's noise and chaos going on just a little bit more than I'm used to and then meditate and feel all of that for a little bit. And then I want to go somewhere else and do that. And, you know, go to my office and sit in the middle of all my work that I have to do and welcome the feelings and sensations that come up from that. This is all the beginnings of releasing and starting to welcome everything that's there and just letting it all go until you can be one with all of that. There's no more attachment or aversion to all the things you have to do at work. Um, and there's no more resistance or push or pull or fight. You know, you're getting the fight out of you with all these things you have to do. And so that's when you begin to integrate um, the process with uh, places you're in resistance. And that's been why I've succeeded so much is I've done that a lot. I've done that a lot. I taught, I just recently taught my sisters, you know, the releasing program that we teach here. I took them through it, brought them into the last class and they're going nuts. Their whole lives are changing. Because they're using this, my sister went and used this process at work, used this process at home, and they're like, oh my God, there's so much changing so fast. Because it's very different than just meditating. It's, it's learning. And, and then there's the other side too, the people who want to meditate to get out of their bodies. I want to astral project. I want to float out of my body. And leave. I'm like, what are you telling? You're going to leave your body someday. Don't worry about that. That's going to happen. You know, but you're in this body for a reason. And... You know, so it, it, everything in the reason is in and through the body, not leaving the body early. You know, it's great if you want to astral project a little bit to get a sense that there's more than, than just this physical body. But, you know, wherever you're stored trauma, this is what we talk about by embodiment. The whole body stores emotions and feelings and releasing all that stored emotion and feeling through the whole body then allows everything to flow in and through the body. The body's not you ultimately. The only way you're going to truly know that is by going deep into the body and dissolving all the resistance to it until you yeah. can see in and through it and beyond it. Cause you got kinks in it, like kinks in a hose all kinked up. That's what the yogis are trying to do with, with uh, all their postures and stuff. And so, Excellent. yeah, I think uh, what, what helps me a lot recently with, with getting in my body and meditating this way is where is the Qigong classes. There's this guy who is teaching and he's also teaching Tao and anatomy of the human body. So he literally tells you where are which organs and what's their function in the body and how it's related to the emotions. And it's, there's a lot from the Chinese medicine, 
but I, I, I can feel the difference. Like, like when I meditate, like when I'm in my brain and like in the limbic system and I know where it is and I know what's its role. And I yeah. Okay, good. That's my question is, can you, when they describe something to you, I know this is what I advise people. If you take a class like that and they start saying, well, this does this and this does this. And even me, I say that, you know, you feel this in the gut. Uh, what I'd recommend is take that with a grain of salt and then start meditating and feeling and, and you know, running energy on it, however, you know, you're doing it in Qigong until you get a sense for yourself. Because it may be slightly different than what you're imagining. And if you just take what they say as dogmatically true, but if you, if you know, that's going to limit you. But if you throw out that label and you start exploring that part of your body for yourself, you might, you'll see what they mean if they're, if they're accurate and you'll learn a lot and you'll get a real experience of that part of your body. So it sounds like you're already doing that, but I highly recommend people do that. And Qigong's fascinating to me. Uh, a few Qigong teachers I've seen around here all seem super analytical in their head, so I wouldn't learn Qigong from them um, because Qigong is obviously a highly feeling-based art. Um, and um, unfortunately, a lot of people take what should be feeling-based arts and then either turn them into exercise, turn them into analytical processes, they, they lose the feeling, and then it's like, it's like it gets passed down from generation to generation, and then suddenly yeah. the original intent of all that depth of feeling is just gone. Yeah. Yeah. This is what I'm curious about. How do you how do you explain to someone f who is in their head their entire life feeling? How do you get the person who is deeply in their heads? How do you how do you teach them to feel? Because it's this, it's the same thing again. Like a fish being in the dirty water the whole life doesn't know that the water is dirty. So like mm -hmm. there needs to be something to contrast it with. How how do you do this in the beginning? So that the person contrast. You said it. Contrast. I'll I'll pull up. Uh... I'll pull up, uh, first off, I'll speak more in feeling with them. I won't go meet them in their analytical place. Second of all, I'll pull up video clips of people in feeling and contrast to me to people way out of feeling back and forth a bunch of times. And, and uh, I'll have other people around that can see it. And so that the other people can say, I see this and this and this and this and this. And then they'll be like, what? And then eventually, if we keep doing that, um, they, they might get a, they'll get a glimpse of something uh, because they're in their head. And then, um, and then they start to feel, then we'll start doing movement practices and exploring the depth of feeling in a part of their body. And I'll find some part where we can get a little bit of feeling, 1%, 2%, through like small amounts, remember the 1% rule. And if we can get a tiny amount of feeling, then it can grow. And all we have to do is nurture that. It's like a little fire. I, I'm out in the woods and there's wind blowing and I need to start a fire and I clink the two rocks or the flint or whatever, make a spark and it's a little baby fire. That's the feeling. Mm -hmm. Once I've got that little baby fire, the key is to protect it and create a safe space for it. That's why you want the safe space when you're first starting, not the noisy, chaotic space, and nurture that flame along. But when it becomes big enough and strong enough, you don't need to protect it anymore. It's, it's, it's anchored now. And then you can go out and it can face, like, now I've got enough feeling. I can go out and practice my feeling in the world amongst noise and chaos and people. And I can keep deepening that level of feeling. And that's that's the next level yeah. and so but that contrast piece is huge and you got to start really 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 this is the other mistake i see workshops doing i go to some of these workshops is it one where they were doing a lot of embodiment based experiential exercises but they were so bold and forward and huge on these people that people who didn't have a lot of feeling were forced to compensate by getting in their head and pushing really hard 
And I'm like, no, no, this guy needs to go really subtle for a little bit, really subtle exercises till he understands or she what feeling is from the subtlety, the little here, a little there. And then when they get it, we want to amp like that baby fire, we want to amplify and grow it. And then they can come back and do the bold exercises when they understand what they're working towards. Um, but if we just start them with these bold experiences, then a lot of times they just learn to do it from their head. They wall off, push, 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 push. And they become pushers. Yeah. Uh, and even if they get results, then they're going to crash at a certain point because it was all yeah. like, like made from that push and they're going to get the pullback. Exactly what I did with the rock stars and energy drinks. I pushed, pushed, pushed and pushed my anxiety down until I burned out, until I was sick. I mean, I had, I had thrush in my throat. I had uh, polyps in the back of my throat with blood on them. I had blood in my urine at one point. I had, I had pushed myself so hard and my body so hard and it just was sick. I had bad yeah, candida all through my body and, and I just, the detox was insane. Oh my God, that was a rough period of my life. And um, but that's when I stopped pushing and I refused to go to any teacher now that, that I don't mind pushing. Like if I'm here, I want to push to here. I want to push to here. And if I got a strong base and I'm solid inside, then I can push quite a bit because I have a strong base. But when somebody is coming out of it, you don't want to push that much. They need the healing, they need the nurturing, they need the rest. You got to know where your student's at. Mm. And, um, and, and, and because some student could handle a huge push, you know, he's going to drop in under the huge push, but a lot of students aren't. And when you got a huge room of people and you've got them all pushing like crazy and you don't know which ones actually maybe need something subtler for a while and you got to pull them out, actually probably a good bulk of them. And uh, there's a few that can handle the push, you know, but a lot of teachers, that's how they teach because it's a great way to teach a giant audience. Has it ever happened that, that um, there's a guy who is so much in their head that he, that he takes this as something esoteric and something like this is too much, this doesn't make any sense and then just leaves, leaves it like, like that, like that. Yeah. yeah, that can happen. Sure, sure it can happen. Um, so that's why it's, I love to have a lot of different people so he can start to see the reaction of different people in the room. If I have 10 people in the room, and he's one of one or two that are having trouble seeing what's going on, then he starts to question himself. If it's just me saying, look at this, and I'm telling him he can't feel, he can, he could easily challenge that, right? Yeah. Uh, now, uh, let's, let's look at this, be the devil's advocate on that. Somebody else could say, well, you could be influence, you could be having those same people in there and just influencing their minds, right? Um, and making them believe something almost like a hypnotic trance. And that's possible too. That's why you got to explore it for a bit and see if it affects your life. Are you getting new results? Is your life changing? Is this person trying to be your guru in, in, or, you know, I don't believe in the guru thing. I'm not a guru. I, I model, I show it's your job to implement. It's your job to change your life. I'll help you. I'll push you as long as you want to. When you're done, move on. I'm not your guru. I'm not your, I'm a teacher and I'm not right or wrong. I even tell people when I show them something, I'm like, don't take it at a hundred percent. Just try it on. Maybe it's 50% true. Maybe it's 75% true. Feel it out for you, but try it on for a while. So at least you can learn from it. Yeah. You know, and you can figure out what works and what doesn't. Don't just throw it out the, throw it out with the baby with the bathwater. As long as it's not going to hurt somebody, you know, you don't want, I don't want, I don't want anybody to do anything that's going to hurt anybody else. And I'm not talking about like not making somebody emotionally sad because you know, you needed to end a relationship and you ended it. Yeah. That's, that's, that's real. That's something that, that we need to be good at. I'm talking about literally going out with the intent to hurt people, you know, 
or, and that's, that's not good. And, or, or saying that my way is the only way that's another don't ever, my way is not the only way. There's other great teachers out there. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of pride as well. Yeah. yeah. It, like what you talked about before reminded me a quote from, I think it's Buddha who said like, like, don't believe anything I say unless it's proven by your own experience. Like this, yeah. this, is, this is the best thing a teacher can say. Yes. So all I want to do is help you keep exploring your experience till you, till you find your answers for yourself. And we're all going to have a different path. I mean, <clears throat> my path is not going to be the same as yours. The plus of my path is that I went through so much and went from so far away that I, I and had to go through so many different directions. I see a lot of angles because uh, I've had a lot of experience. <clears throat> that still doesn't mean your path is going to be the same as mine. Or that you might not have a, a, a you might need a teaching that's slightly different than anything I've even experienced so far. Um, so I'm constantly having to look through the lens of each person and say, what's this person experiencing? And luckily I'm pretty good at that, at putting myself in people's shoes and what are they experiencing? So I can say, okay, let me try this with them. Let me try that to get them to understand. <clears throat> I'll change the topic a little bit. I'm curious about what you think about toxic masculinity and this whole concept, like <coughs> how this is being marketed and for, for like the concept being popularized. Mm -hmm. I think it's like a two-edged sword because like on, on one hand, it's good that it, it's being spoken about, about men, uh, about the society wanting men to feel more and wanting to show their emotions more. But at the same time with this, being, with this concept of toxic masculinity, I'm not sure if it's not to, on the other hand causing more of a nice guy syndrome and creating more guilt for the people who are already in trouble. So what's, what's your, what's your take on that? I mean, you can't attack something without causing a reaction. Anything you attack, uh, you cause a reaction. So, and you can't have one side of the polarity without having the other side. So we could say there's, there's masculine people that are that use masculinity for good and to help people and grow. And there's mass people that use masculinity for darkness, you, but you can't say that without saying the same thing about femininity. So if we're going to have a talk with Matt and we want to create this term that never existed before called toxic masculinity, then by default, we create the term toxic femininity too, which does exist. Um, or doesn't exist. Let's, let's, let's say doesn't, doesn't it, it exists because we created it. It's just a label. Um, so I don't love the term toxic masculinity. I think it's, um, it's a term used to create guilt and we don't, and we already talked about guilt. We don't need more mm. guilt. And if we want to create more guilt in people, then you're going to create more nice guy. Like you said, more shame, more problems. I'm a toxic male. Oh, I'm bad. Uh, you know, um, and then you're going to create a reaction to that, which is going to be the attack of the more attack on feminism and, 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 and which is not good or bad. It just is. If you believe in feminism, great. If you don't, great. I don't, I'm not concerned with that. I think there is uh, a lot of feminine people or feminists that are actually working at being more masculine than the men that they're attacking. And they're trying to turn the men more feminine. So it's a very confusing thing. It's not, there is no one answer and there's many gray areas in it. Um, what I prefer to look at is how do we, you know, I could sit here and talk about toxic masculine men all day, but there's been toxic men and women, let's just say that, since time began. There's been women manipulating and whispering guys' ears, getting them to do dark things because women are masters at it. They're masters at the subtle. And then we blame the man for it. Or vice versa, there's been men abusing women forever and abusing other people. There's also been men building, creating structures and, and, 
healing and protecting and creating safe space for women to evolve in. And there's been women healing and nurturing and inspiring men to greatness. Um, and in my mind, I want to focus on helping build the men that want to create amazing lives and helping support the women that want to support them and helping building women that want to create inspiring lives. And, and we can talk about the more we talk about toxic masculinity, the more we'll just see it in the world, the more we'll argue over fight over it, the more it'll exist, the bigger it gets. And a friend of mine even says he doesn't even like the two terms. I can't remember. What did he say? It was really interesting. He says toxic, uh, and masculinity shouldn't even go together because to he says toxic. What did he say? The toxic, because uh, toxic comes from to the, you know, there's toxic shame out there, um, and shame is an, is a is a self hate, and there's toxic shame. So, and that comes from Bradshaw's work, John Bradshaw, uh, the the shame based child um, and toxic shame, and um, and masculinity, and so shame is a lower emotion. It's a self-hate we're dealing with. Masculinity is masculinity is just masculinity. It's just the masculinity, in my opinion, is this beautiful male, um, primarily male. Could be there's, there's definitely masculinity and female energy that that protects, grounds, uh, provides. So, in my opinion, and, and kind of when I'm looking at what he's saying, he's saying there shouldn't even really you shouldn't even associate the word toxic with masculinity. You could have a man that's experiencing toxic shame and self-hate that's then therefore using his masculinity for darkness, but toxic masculinity, the word, the word being created in and of itself is not healthy. And I don't think toxic femininity is great either. So even as I bring it up, I don't want it to become commonplace in languaging toxic femininity. Um, so to me, it's a big messy soup. It's, it's, there's a lot. We could, we could debate this for hours on end. But the, what I don't want to do is debate it. What I want to do is focus on how do we create more healthy, masculine men? Why don't we create the term uh, uh, love, supportive masculinity, loving masculinity, healthy masculinity, and healthy femininity? And why don't we focus on what, is it, what are those qualities and how do we bring more of that out? And how do we, how do we uh, reward more men that are out there being masculine and love them and appreciate them? from from this healthy perspective why don't we reward more women that are being healthy from a feminine perspective where they're really nurturing and inspiring and not not using their femininity to manipulate and take and control and from, from a subversive way and not using their masculinity to, to control enough because remember feminine is really good at the subtle and we both have both and masculinity is really good at force so subtle manipulation seeing under the surface playing with subtle emotions uh, and then masculinity playing with force and power. And these two energies uh, have been, can go at each other in opposition or they can go or they can support each other with love. And that's what I want to focus more on. So I don't even want to really go down that road so much. Um, so if we, and then I'll give you one more example. If we look at a primitive time, look at a primitive world where we have, you have the wild, let's say you have a wild jungle and a tribe living in it jungle spilled with things that could kill you do you do you want some really masculine people to be there to protect you to, to build a nice safe space in the middle of that jungle like almost like a, a set a, a boundary where you and your and the children and elderly and everybody else can survive and thrive and actually 
uh, be healthy. And when that, once they, let's say they cut out this safe space in the jungle and then they start bringing in, they go out into the danger to bring back food. They go out to bring back things that we need in the safe space to feed it, to, to, to keep, and then we, and we build and we protect. And then what happens inside that safe space, the feminine then uses its subtle energies to nurture, inspire, and heal. So when the men come back, they're nurtured, they're healed to go back out and fight again. And then the women can tell the difference between uh, all the different cries of a baby. Like this one means this, this means that. Two hunters come back from the hunt and they're disgruntled a little bit and they've been fighting. And they can feel the difference in their two vibrations because they're so good at these subtle energies and they, they start to immediately go to work to bring them down. That's what they're doing. They're masters. They're, the, they're in, a, in a weird sort of way, they're kind of the mystics. And, we, and this is another problem. We, we, we denounce the femininity as less than the masculine. And look at the power of that, that they, they're nurturing, they're healing, they're supporting their mystical kind of energy, inspires the masculine to go back out and risk his life again the next day to bring back food for the children, for the women, for the elderly, and to, to protect them again. And this cycle goes on and on and on. Um, that's what we should be looking at. How do we bring more of that into the world? You know, if we got women that want to be more masculine and feminine, great. And they move into the masculine department. You know, I want to be, and if we got men that want to be more feminine than masculine, that's great too. You know, a lot of healers and shamans are feminine men. And they have a lot of feminine energy. I have a lot of feminine energy. And what we're going to experience as time goes on is that men and women are both going to become highly masculine and feminine, but we're going to, like a left or right hand, we're going to choose one side. Most men will choose masculine, most women will choose feminine because that's what our bodies are built for. I, yeah, I, I really like how... I, I really like what you said about like the, nece the necessity to focus on that thing that we want to nurture because... I think this is also, I heard this on Tony Robbins events and he was saying, he, he says that the, the, uh, the people's biggest addiction in the world is not drugs or alcohol or cocaine or anything, it's problems. People are addicted to their problems and they are only like hyper-focusing on their problems 24 by 7 and that's why they don't see anything else as problems. So mm -hmm. anytime like they solve one problem because of that, they just find another one. Yep. Yeah, I call that problem-oriented uh, versus solution-oriented. I have a teaching around that, and I say, you know, you got ultimately to become successful, you have to become solution-oriented. And um, people who are problem-oriented see problem and problem, and then they, they like exactly what Tony Robbins said. They hyper-focus on the problem, and they expand it into their world, and they spend hours. What am I going to do about this problem? How am I going to fix this problem? And that may become their, their world for a week, a month, a year, five years, ten years. The one problem. Um, people who are solution oriented see the problem go, oh there's a problem what's the solution and they start focusing on what's the solution what's the solution how do I get to the next level how do I get to the next level? the problem is just like it's like here's the problem but they're actually focusing past it and they're saying yeah, yeah there's a problem there there's a solution over there and down my timeline and I'm gonna see that solution I'm gonna focus on that solution until it presents itself then they go to the next one the next one and they just they go through problems like they're nothing like the hurdles on them you know, you're running around a track and you're going over the hurdles, you know, and, and there's just one hurdle after another. They don't, do you think the, the runners will sit and look at the hurdle and stare at the hurdle as they're looking forward to saying, how do I get over it? No, they expect to get over it. They see the other side of it before they even jump. They, they're telling their body, you're going to land over there. And this hurdle is no big deal, you know, and that's what they're doing. Yeah. Okay. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to tell you, I read the book, The, the Man Who Tapped the Secrets of the Universe. By the way, it took uh -huh. me a while to, to find it. And I read it on Wednesday, 
I read it again on Thursday and again on Friday. <laughs> the, amazing it's, book, huh? It's an amazing book. And on Saturday, I made notes in my own notebook from, from, from the book. <laughs> I used to have a stack of them. There was a bookstore here in LA that sold them. It was a special type of bookstore, more spiritual. And I buy like five or six at a time. I just give them out to people. It's it's a small book. It's very easy to read. And yeah. it's just so inspiring, that book. Yeah. So. It's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable how much one man can do. And how simple yeah. he can put it. <laughs> like, Talk about somebody that's solution oriented, right? <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, and yeah, and you read about his life. It's like, how do not more people know about this human being? Yeah, that's that's the crazy part. Yeah, Walter Russell's his name, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And the Walter book is Russell. a man who talks secrets of the universe. If you like that book, there's another book called The Man Who Talked to Flowers. Buy that one next. It's also a small read written by the same author, and it's all about George Washington Carver, and uh, they lived around okay. the same. Yeah. Well, they mentioned him in the beginning as someone who is a very high candidate for that guy that they were looking for in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Carver was absolutely insane, and Russell was absolutely insane, and and you know Russell was revered by Edison, uh, not Edison, Einstein, uh, not Einstein, uh, Tesla. Was Tesla was one of his best friends and thought he was a genius. If Tesla thinks you're a genius, there's something <laughs> going on there. Yeah. Have, have, yeah. you the, have you read the, the physics one, the universal one from? The, the universal one? No, I haven't read, I keep meaning to read that, uh, but I have another one. I have the Cosmic Consciousness Manual, which I've read a lot of. Uh, I need to keep, I need to go through that again, but that's a $200 book from okay. the, the foundation. Um, there's a lot of his books I really want to get into, and I just, I, uh, they get, they, they, they seem complex sometimes, but they, I don't think they really are. It's just, I got to put some time into them, into some of his deeper teachings that he wrote. Uh, but the, that one you're referring to, I, I should read that one. The Divine Iliad, is that the one you're talking about? Sorry? The, the, the Divine Iliad, is that the one you're talking about? Uh, he has a book, I, one I, of his famous books is it's called the universal one. It's the one about physics, where when he kind of like merged the four big physics theories into one. And put no, I haven't read that one. The one I want to read is, is the Divine Iliad. That's one of his most famous books. Okay. Uh, and so, and I, yeah. I, I should pick that up. What, what's has, coming uh, up? For, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just so you know, he has a website called philosophy.org. It's dedicated to his work, philosophy.org, and it's and it's a foundation that is dedicated to all of Walter Russell's teachings. And so you can find all his books and materials there. Okay, I'll check that out. Okay. What's coming up for Fearless? What's, what's your plans? What's your personal plans, your company plans? How do you, where do you well, plan to take the company in the next year? <clears throat> we're growing a lot. We've got a lot of coaches that are, uh, have been expanding with the company that got a lot more work, work, workshops coming up down the pike. So we're starting to move towards teaching women. In our women's programs, so that'll be uh, absolutely amazing. We're building a studio right now. We just rented another space over here at the Fearless headquarters, a second one. We're gonna be running a, a, a permanent video production space. We'll be doing uh, podcasts and video interviews and, and discussions, and so regular program nice. running out of uh, all the time. Um, well, so like a Fearless TV. Yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> I should see that URL available. Nobody buy it. No, actually, I already checked, it's not available. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And then, so those are the two things that are coming down. I'm heavily getting involved in a lot of the marketing again, starting to look at everything. So we're, we're moving in that direction big time. Uh, Fearless is becoming more and more of a company that's really teaching these principles around consciousness, manifestation, creating your own reality, 
Uh, we still have the dating division, but we're going to start moving in that direction more and more and more. The energetic modeling, energetic embodiment teachings. So we want to go deeper into that as well as the women's program. Um, and uh, that's what excites me now. As I'm getting older, you know, the dating is cool, but I'm going to leave that. I'm going to teach guys like you. You guys take that stuff over and then I'm going to move more, more into this consciousness and, and helping people, you know, heal their bodies, change their realities, get, get, go after all their dreams. And because that's what I love doing. I love people. And like we're here to live big lives. We're here to live amazing lives. We're here to, uh, to have fun and, and live primarily in cap, but we have to learn like we're not given this instruction manual the day we land here. We have to figure it out. It's a feeling based process, not a literal database process. But once you learn how that works, your whole life changes. That's what we really want to teach in Fearless. And that's what I want to move towards more and more over the next few years. Um, I liken it to learning to, like if you walked onto a beach and you've never surfed in your life, you never even heard of surfing. And I tell you one day, I can, you can take this big long board oh. and put it in water and you're going to stand on it and you're going to ride on top of the water and you're going to ride up and down those things called waves out there. And you're going to ride up the face of them, maybe even do a little spin or a flip off the top and back down. You'll think I'm fucking crazy. I'm telling you to, I'm telling you to basically walk on water. And you're like, no fucking way. And, and that's, that's what, you know, when, when somebody says that's living in deep apathy, grief, and fear primarily, or, or they haven't learned to manage their systems or their body yet, that, uh, that they can create anything they want, like this guy riding on top of the water. They're like, you're crazy. If I go out there and maybe they've never even swam in their life, oh, you throw me in those waves, I'm going to drown and die. You know, that's their answer. And so you take them and you, you got to start small. They weigh in a little bit of the whitewash and then they learn to float and they learn to float over the waves a little bit and they, they get beat up a little bit and they try different things and they get smashed out of the wave, tumbled and taken a little water and spit it back out. That's life. But in time, they, yeah. And, and, and in time, they learn to finally float over those waves. Eventually, they learn to body surf. Eventually, they learn to boogie board. Eventually, they get a surfboard out. And with time, and real practice in embodiment because you need that high level of embodiment you need to feel your body completely to be an amazing surfer you're doing that the crazy stuff on the surfboard like the professional surfers you know and, and that's the same as learning to manifest your own reality and having an amazing life that's the process my job is to shorten that process as much as humanly possible for people to make it faster and easier thank you very much brian yeah you're welcome and yeah, I, I hope to have you have you again in my podcast, maybe in episode 100 and something, <laughs> just a yeah, few months from now. I'll be one in 100 and something. <laughs> maybe I'll be so, one in 101, who knows? 101, okay. Yeah, we'll see. So well, enjoy, the rest, enjoy the rest of 2019, and I hope to talk to you soon. That was great, thank you. I appreciate it. Glad to be here, man. Thank you, Brian. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.